Father, we do look to you for truth, for righteousness, for all that we need pertaining to life and godliness. And Lord, we find this in your inerrant, infallible word. So we come to your word today believing that through your word you sanctify us, you change us, you mold us and make us to become like your son Jesus. And Lord, you even use your word to inspire faith in those who don't know you. You call them to salvation through the power of your word. And so, Lord, we trust in the power of your word today. We come to your word believing that does indeed save and sanctify. Help us attend our hearts to these truths and live out these things in our lives, being obedient to all that you've commanded us. Doing it not for some sort of merit or earn some sort of favor with you, but doing it for your glory because all that you've done for us. Help us attend our hearts to these truths today. In your name we pray, amen. You may be seated. We have such a privilege as always to gather together and worship. The pinnacle of our worship is indeed to attend our hearts and minds to the Word of God, what He has said to us. So let's open our Bibles to Matthew chapter 23. Today we come to the final words of Jesus to His own people, the people of Israel. Many of us have been surprised to find that His last sermon, His last public message to the people of Israel was a message of woe, a message really announcing God's curse upon the people of Israel who were led by the false religious leaders and the scribes and the Pharisees. One thing to keep in mind is that these related groups, the, the scribes, sort of what we would think as the accommodations of the Jewish religion, and the, the Pharisees, who were one of the socio-religious parties in that day, these were the most popular in all of Israel in that day. There were others. There were other false teachers, other godless leaders like the Herodians, the corrupt Sanhedrin, other religious parties like the Sadducees or the Essenes. But the Pharisees, with the backing of the scribes, were the dominant and most popular among the people. And what they peddled was a brand of religion devoid of grace and devoid of truth. It was not grace because it was all about man's moral accomplishment. Like most false religions today, it was a religion of merit. And it was devoid of truth because not only did they add many commands and laws to God's commands, but also because they missed the main point. And when the Messiah showed up, which is the point of the Old Testament, they rejected Him. So Jesus had that dubious honor of all true prophets. It was to announce woe to the false teachers and woe to all who followed them. I think this is the saddest part of the whole system of Israel in that day. People blindly followed these false teachers all the way to hell. We'll even hear to some extent today this saddens even Jesus. As he got to the end of his sermon, he turned his woes away from the false leaders and he announced the truth that most people in Israel following those false leaders would face the same demise. Let me read to you our passage, Matthew 23. I'm going to read 37 to the end of the chapter of 39, just those verses there. Follow along as I read aloud. Oh, Jerusalem, 
Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your, your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This is the word of God. I was reminded in the last couple of weeks, sort of kicking off a lot of mission work again and uh, looking towards some Fiji missions uh, later on, some missions, uh, construction missions, but also uh, some missions we're going to be doing. Uh, Tim Challies and I are going to be traveling there to do a, a little conference. And I was asked some years ago to do a little conference there uh, in Fiji. And I was asked to address the subject of knowledge, knowledge of Scripture and the life of a Christian. You see, one of the temptations we face is to separate knowledge, knowledge of God, knowledge of Scripture from God's work in our lives or the Spirit's work in our lives. There was a trend throughout the last generation of Christians, an anti-intellectual trend. The idea is that any deep analytical thinking, any serious focused study of doctrine would invariably lead to pride, and so you've got to avoid it. Worse than that, some people believe that if you study too hardly, you would, you would become a liberal one day. Spiritless liberalism, cold Christianity. So a whole swath of Christians in America, even today, just avoid any deep study of knowledge of the truth of God and Scripture. You pair that trend with the ever-popular church growth movement, which basically says let's minimalize everything about God to the points that are most accepted by culture. You end up with a generation of people, a whole swath of our people across America with little knowledge, little discernment, little truth. Millions of people, when challenged, when facing hard times in life, they walk away from the truth. Many others think they're going to heaven, but when you ask them what is the gospel, they cannot even explain to you what the gospel is. So I put my thinking cap on, and I open up the Bible and got some resources that help me understand the Bible. And just by way of introduction this morning, I want to give you some things that the Bible says about knowledge, about knowledge of God's Word, knowledge of truth, knowledge of doctrine. And I think this gives us a a running start to our passage today. Really, I'm sort of front-loading the sermon. This is more like the application of what we're going to see in our passage today. One thing I wrote down was this, knowledge is integral to the Spirit's work in our lives. A lot of people think that the work of God's Spirit in their lives is completely apart from truth and completely apart from knowledge. It's just a supernatural zap from heaven that bypasses the intellect. It's just some sort of emotion, some sort of zap of feeling and, and vibe that you get. I think the mind does not have to be engaged. In fact, many people believe the mind shouldn't be engaged. It ought to be empty of truth, empty of doctrine. It's just a, a, a driving emotion. Now, listen to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, for if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is fruitless. What am I to do? I will pray with my spirit, but I will also pray with my mind. I will sing praise with my spirit, but I will also sing praise with my mind. Now, whatever you feel about that word tongue there, clearly Paul is saying our minds should be engaged or it is 
quote, to use his word, fruitless. So many people hold to a mindless form of Christianity and have pitted the intellect against the work of the Spirit. And Paul says here, it is part of what the Spirit does. The Spirit works in our minds. The Spirit works with doctrine. He works with knowledge. He inspires us to act as we study His Word. Another thing I wrote down was knowledge is the foundation to worship. Paul records a bit of his prayer for the Ephesians. You're going to be back in Ephesians next week as Pastor Ryan takes you through three Sundays, continuing on the study. I think he's in chapter 4, maybe even get into chapter 5. Back in chapter 1, he says, under the inspiration of the Spirit, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Him. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know what is the hope to which He's called you, what are the riches of His glorious inheritance of the saints, and what are the immeasurable greatness of His power toward us who believe according to the work of His great might. So what is He praying? Just kind of sum up what He says there. He says, I want you to come to this knowledge. I want you to come to a certain amount of truth. And as you come, come to the truth, as you come to this knowledge, what's going to be enriched? Your hope is going to be enriched, enriched with knowledge, he says. Resources, all that God has for you, the, the riches he has for you, this will be given to you with knowledge. Even power over sin, this will be granted to you as you study to know and persevere in the knowledge of God and his word. Well, if those things aren't a foundation to praise him, I don't know what it is. You start reading the Bible and you're provided with all these wonderful things and you can't help but erupt in praise and worship of God. If you're the type of person who leans away from knowledge, if you're the person who doesn't really like reading, and there's a lot of us who don't like reading, don't like studying, don't like doing that, just remember that God can use knowledge even if you're not very inclined to those things. If you're not very intellectually inclined, just remember God uses knowledge. God uses reading. Push yourself. And the more you push yourself, what you'll find is your worship and praise of God. Even on a Sunday morning like this, you're going to be singing louder. You're going to be more into what's happening. You're going to be thinking about those words. You're going to know more what those words mean as you sing them. You think about all the knowledge and all the truth that's involved in the hymn book of the Bible, the book of Psalms. In fact, the psalm writers had a word they liked to use it's the word meditate, and it's really the opposite of what Hindu meditation. Hindu meditation is emptying your mind. You read the Psalms, you realize biblical meditation is filling your mind with Scripture, filling your mind with truth. Psalm 77, 12, I'll ponder all your work, meditate on your mighty deeds. This is a, a song as he's thinking and uh, uh, meditating and reflecting on all the things that God has done. He's worshiping. You see this in Psalm 119 on several places, Psalm 143, Psalm 145. And the more he meditates and thinks and dwells and studies and learns truth and focuses on the knowledge of biblical truth, the more he's inclined to, to worship God. You see, learning and studying and dwelling on the Word and God's deeds vastly enhances your worship, your praise. In fact, it's the foundation of all praise. Third thing I wrote down was knowledge is essential to your spiritual growth. Philippians 1, verse 9, It is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus 
to the glory and praise of God. What does Paul believe here? He believes that knowledge of the Lord will change their minds. It'll mature them. It'll grow them. It'll transform the way they operate, the way that they make decisions. It'll help them in terms of discernment. Paul says essentially the same thing to Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 3, a very famous passage. All Scripture is breathed out by God, profitable for teaching, for approval, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. In other words, you want to grow, you want to be equipped for every good work, you arm yourself with the knowledge of the Word of God. Timothy, you want to be godly. Timothy, you want to walk with God. There's one source for all of that, the Bible. He goes on to Timothy, tell Timothy, Timothy, by the way, that's why I'm telling you, not necessarily to engage in a bunch of schemes in your church, not to do all these programs and plans to get more people or to do this. Timothy, what I want you to do in season and out of season is to preach the Word. That's what will save the people. That's what will sanctify the people. Fourth thing I wrote down was knowledge is the basis of faith. All the way back down to the beginning of our own faith. James 1, verse 18, He brought you forth by the word of truth. Knowledge of the truth from God's word came to you. Philippians, or excuse me, Philemon, verse 6, And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. Paul was excited because uh, this man was going to witness, was going to testify, sharing his faith. But sharing his faith is sharing knowledge, is sharing truths, is sharing facts, is sharing reality. It's not just some sort of emotional vibe. Yes, there must be emotion involved in it, but it was a, it was a, a sharing of truth, and that is what pulled the emotions along. Paul says in Romans 10, faith comes by hearing and hearing the word about Christ. Our faith is built on the rhematos, the, the word, the spoken testimony, the truth about Christ. Our faith is not some blind leap, just crossing our fingers and closing our eyes and just believing. Believing in some guy who walks into a woods and finds a bunch of gold plates that no one has ever, ever seen then or since. Our faith is not in some guy who goes up on the mountain like Muhammad and is told he's a prophet. No, we trust in fact. We trust in the fact that God made himself known to us through his word. God made these things real to us. These things are facts. These things are truths. It was testified of Jesus that he had been raised from the dead. It wasn't just some, something we close our eyes and believe. It's illogical. No, it's logical. There are testimonies. There's written testimony. All that knowledge, all those truths delivered to us in a reliable, proven, archaeologically, scientifically accurate Word of God. And folks, when you give yourself to the study, to the learning of the Word of God, God will fill you with faith. He'll sanctify you. He'll fill you with discernment. His knowledge will erupt in, this knowledge will erupt in praise to Him. It'll become the foundation of the Spirit's work in your life. And the reason I give you this is because I think this is the, really the application of the passage today. The Pharisees took knowledge away from the people. They built a wall of separation between the truths of the Scripture, the, the knowledge and the doctrine of Scripture. They built a, a wall of separation between the Bible and the people. They said, hey, don't worry about knowledge. We're the experts. Don't worry about study. The Bible is complicated. It's unknowable. You leave the thinking and the learning and the doctrine and the theology to us. You just do what we tell you. 
You just follow us. We'll guide you. Don't ask questions. We'll lead you on the right path. Now, the Bible tells us, the Bible itself tells us to listen and learn from our leaders. Paul says, follow me. He says, I'm an apostle. Follow me. But what else does he say? Follow me as I follow Christ. We only follow Paul insofar as he follows Christ. Sure, follow leaders. Sure, submit to the elders. Sure, listen to great pastors and theologians, both past and present, but test them according to truth. Test them according to the Word of God. Give yourself to the study and knowledge of God's Word, and you'll grow in your ability to discern the right teachers, the right preachers. You won't just sit here and say, well, I'm supposed to do what Pastor John says. You'll sit here and say, okay, is this true? Is this what the Bible says? I'm here not to respond to Pastor John or Pastor Ryan or later on Pastor Paul. I'm here to respond to God's Word. Is this God's Word? That's the Spirit's work on your heart. By discerning, by learning, you'll learn what church to go to. We have a lot of people leaving us this summer. This summer, some of you are going out. You're going to be looking for a church. Study the Word. Find out what the Bible says about church. Don't just look what feels good, what's popular. Ask the question, what does the Bible say about church? What does the Bible say about preaching, about worship? What does the Scripture say about these things? Now, had the people in Jesus' day done this, they would never have followed these rats, the wolves, scribes, the Pharisees. Without followers, these groups would have died. The people of Israel would have accepted their king, the Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth, when he arrived. Instead, the people of Israel just blindly followed. They didn't think about knowledge. They didn't think about truth. They didn't study their Bibles. They followed the leaders blindly, never testing. By the way, Moses in Deuteronomy 18 tells them to test their prophets. Don't just believe anybody who says they're a prophet. Test them. Test them. But these people didn't do that. They followed their own leaders. And these leaders led them in a pattern through the centuries, a pattern of rejecting God's men, of rejecting God's truth, of even killing and persecuting these people who preached truth. Jesus explained they followed these false leaders all the way to their own destruction. And this broke Jesus' heart. He longed for them, like a mother hen, to gather her chicks under her wings, but they blindly followed these false leaders and rejected the truth. Now, like I said, I front-loaded this message. This is sort of the application, but it leads us to understand a, a fourth category of people whom God curses. Jesus is announcing these woes. Woe is another word for curse. He's announcing curses. This is his last sermon to the people of Israel, and here he is, just like a good Old Testament prophet, and he's announcing curse, curse after curse after curse. He announced woe, seven woes. And out of these woes in this final passage, I have made four categories of Sinners whom God in Jesus curses. We've seen three so far. First, we saw that He curses the legalists. The legalists, again, this is something they would have noticed about the Pharisees. They believe that in, in the end, God is pleased by human effort. In reality, this is a repudiation of faith. They put their attention on all these rules, on all these man-made rules, really not even the standards of Scripture, but rules and ceremonies that they had devised 
to make themselves look good and the people look bad. These Pharisees were legalists. God also, through Jesus, announced another woe, a second curse, or another woe against deceivers, another group of people. Looking at these woes, you can categorize a couple of woes as woe against deceivers. These rascals created whole systems of deceit, ways that they could look good, look moral. They could claim honesty by a technicality, but really live in a dishonest way. I call this moral misdirection. They performed morally in one area so, so as to distract everyone, and behind the scenes they're acting immorally. God was going to curse them, Jesus says. Woe to them, legalists, deceivers. Then we saw God curse them for their overarching sin, sin that Jesus repeats six out of the seven woes. Whom does He curse? He curses the hypocrites. That was number three. These are those so concerned with the external, they completely ignore inner purity, inner truth, inner righteousness. They were filthy dishes, clean on the outside, but full of filth and grime. They were whitewashed tombs, beautiful in the exterior, but full of rotting flesh. This was the Pharisees, the scribes. And so far, Jesus had aimed all of these seven woes at them, these seven curses at them. He confronts them in the temple. We saw that. He confounds them. Chapter 22, and here in chapter 3, he's preaching a sermon against them, but he's really preaching to the people and announcing this woe upon these leaders. Jesus doesn't seem to have any kind of kindness or any kind of warmth toward these false leaders. Of all people, they should receive the Christ, but they only reject and hate. But Jesus doesn't stop there. He turns His attention now to the people, and I believe He does show warmth. He does show heartbreak. They, these people, follow these wolves blindly. And therefore, they too will face the same demise. So this is the fourth kind of sinner that God curses. Number four, blind followers. Blind followers. And by blind followers, I mean blind followers of false teachers. Now, I understand, especially if you're young in the faith, you're sort of learning, you don't know, you just sort of know who to follow, who to listen to. But even then, you're learning discernment, you're learning how to read the Scripture and study the Bible and learn some discernment. You may feel blind, if you're following the Word of God, if you're trying to discern, then you're trying not to be blind. You know your temptation to be blind. These people just blindly follow. They refuse to discern. They refuse to pick up their Bibles or look at the scrolls and find out whether or not the Pharisees and scribes were leading them in the right way. And what Jesus says is they're lumped in with these guilty false leaders of Israel. There is tacit consent here. Look at verse 34. This is Jesus pointing to the sin of the Pharisees. These are all the leaders who had rejected God in His day, and they're just like the leaders who had rejected God before. Verse 34, I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you kill and crucify, some of you flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town, so that on you may come the righteous blood shed on earth from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah to the, the son of Berechiah, whom you murder between the sanctuary and the altar. Truly, I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. 
So far, we're just in the false leaders. We're still talking about the false leaders. But Jesus looks at the crowd and says, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. He just shows that everyone there who blindly follow these false leaders are doing the same when it comes to the Messiah. And they would do the same, wouldn't they? They would cry out, crucify him. Give us Barabbas. We'd, ever, we'd rather have a man known for his, his sin, probably murderous sin, than the Son of God among us. They'd blindly follow these false leaders and they were doing the same when it came to the Messiah. So, sadly, what this means is that they are, A, if you're taking notes, guilty by association. Their tacit consent to the leader's actions against God's truth, against God's men, against God's servant, even the Son of God, this consent, even though they didn't voice it, even though they didn't reject Jesus like the Pharisees did vocally coming after Him and plotting and scheming, even though they did nothing that those religious leaders did, because they consented with that and did not object to that, it was the same as approval. It puts them, the people, in association with the Pharisees and the scribes and all the other false leaders. Therefore, they are guilty as well. They're guilty of killing the prophets. They're guilty of killing the men of God through the ages, and soon they will be guilty of killing the Son of God. Well, they fall under the same curses. Now, the Bible does not say that they face the same level of punishment in hell. The Bible actually does teach that there are degrees of punishment of he in hell. There's a stricter punishment for teachers and leaders, ultimately a, the strictest punishment being reserved for Satan himself, but it is to say they will nevertheless end up in the same place, the same hell with their false leaders. They're guilty by association. Jerusalem here is uh, the extension of Israel. I mean, Jerusalem is the, where the temple, it's the temple city, it's the lead city. And when Jesus says Jerusalem, Jerusalem, he's not just talking about just, I'm just talking about the inhabitants of Jerusalem. He's talking about all of Israel led by those in Jerusalem. That's not to say there weren't any faithful people ever in Israel. There were, without question, plenty of faithful people even in Jesus' day. Think about even going back to some of the prophets, Elijah, right? You're reminded of the 6,000 others who were still faithful. But as a whole, if you read the Old Testament, you find out, as a rule, the people of God rejected God, rejected His prophets, rejected His truth, and ultimately would reject His Son. You can't read the Old Testament and come up with a different storyline it gets worse and worse to the point Israel's divided, exiled from the land, there's left nothing but a burning stump of a nation. You ever read the book of Amos? I'm going to assume no, most people haven't. <laughs> Amos preached to the northern uh, nation of Israel. This is in the Old Testament. This is a small prophet in the Old Testament. He preached to the northern nation of Israel. This would have been in the 700s. The northern nation of Israel and they... He preached to them right before they would be decimated and carried out into captivity by Assyria. And he started his message by doing what all Israelites love to hear was a sermon against the pagan nations of the world. Ah, go get them, Amos. I imagine if he was preaching to a congregation like this, people would have already got a few amens. Amen, yeah. Go after them Moabites. Oh, they don't like them Edomites. Remember what they did to us? Yeah, amen there, Amos. Very quickly, Amos turns to the people of Israel, and he lumps the people of Israel 
in with them in their judgment. In fact, he goes on to say, God has divorced you. That's painful. All that to say, God didn't separate out the leaders and the followers. He didn't say, uh, by the way, um, you know, you have some really bad leadership, so it's not your fault that you believe wrongly or you don't accept the Messiah or you're, you're no, you're still guilty. You're still guilty. In the end, each one of them were responsible to know the truth and love God and reject the false leaders. If they didn't, they were guilty by association. Well, what an important lesson for us. Test the people to whom you listen. Make sure they're not false leaders with false doctrine because in the end, you'll be judged with them. It's true even in the political realm, it's realm of associations and friends, especially true about whom you follow spiritually. You better get knowledge. You better test the spirits, John says, meaning you make sure about these spiritual leaders. You say you follow someone who's spiritual, make sure they're true to God's Word, lest you be guilty by association. You know, every once in a while, we get this question, why don't you guys sing Hillsong music? NBC. Why don't you sing Jesus culture or elevation worship? We may not agree with everything that they teach, but they even have songs that are just mainly Scripture. Why don't we sing that? Well, there's a number of reasons. The main reason is I want nothing to do with them. There's enough good music outside of those movements than to try to draw water from that poisonous well. There's a lot of good stuff out there. We don't have to associate. I don't want to be around them. I don't want to send money their way, which we do by purchasing their music and singing it on Sunday morning. I don't want any association with false teachers. I don't want to be guilty by association. The sad part of this is God's heart all along as the people do this over and over again all throughout the history of Israel and even now sort of climaxing at the time of Jesus. Here they are again. Here's the Messiah. Had they known the truth, they would have accepted Him, but they're following blindly these leaders and they're guilty by association. This just breaks God's heart. Look at verse 37. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. You can almost hear weeping behind Jesus' words here. The city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. I, I sent these people to you to help you, to bless you, to call you to righteousness, to call you to the gospel, to repentance and faith. How often I would have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings. You're not willing. That brings us to another description of the blind followers, and that is that they are be indifferent to God's kindness. Sometimes we read the Old Testament and we think about the people of Israel and it's think, oh, this is all about God's judgment, and oh, God's sort of a judging God. You know, the grace and mercy and peace and good stuff in the New Testament. You probably haven't read Revelation if you say that, but it's all the good stuff in the New Testament. Old Testament's judgment, it's hard. But if you read the Old Testament, how much mercy do we see in the Old Testament? It's infinite. Over and over and over and over again for literally thousands of years, God showing mercy and kindness and grace Generation after generation receive grace and forgiveness from God. In fact, in the end, God does show mercy on Israel, not for their sake, but for the sake of His own name. 
Individually, there's mercy for many, many years, but eventually there is judgment and justice. This justice, this judgment didn't make God happy. It's not like God judges with a smile on His face, a smirk on His face. It says in the Old Testament that God does not rejoice in the death of the wicked. But it is right and it is just for Him to carry out His judgment. Why? Because He's shown them so much mercy. They should have listened. They should have loved. They should have responded to Him. And that kindness should have led them to repentance. That kindness, Paul says, is what leads people to repentance. But they did not repent. They carried on. Here is this beautiful, dare I say, cute picture of a little hen gathering her chicks. We live in Hawaii. We know what hens with chicks look like everywhere. Jesus said that we, the triune God, I would have gathered you like this, like a hen protecting you against the nations, providing for you like a mother brought all the benefits of a joyous and growing family. I would have given that to you, but you would have none of it. You rejected it. You spurned our love. Like a surly teen, you rejected, you resisted, you rebelled. You don't want that love. By the way, just an aside there, it's interesting how Jesus just conflates His own authority and His own position with God's. That's because He is God. How often? He looks back in history. He was with God and He was God. And throughout history, He was crying out to Israel to turn to Him. But you're not willing, He said. Therefore, Jesus said, you too are under God's judgment. That's see if you're writing this down. The blind followers are under God's judgment. They're under God's judgment. Verse 38, see, your house is left to you desolate. Now, this is kind of abrupt and short and doesn't sound very, it sounds sort of strange to our 21st century ears, but this is the language of Judaism, of justice and judgment. People would have understood this. In Isaiah 64, Israel's depicted as a, a beautiful house that God had built. God said through Isaiah, behold, this house that God had built is now being judged and will be burnt to the ground. God said in Jeremiah chapter 12, verse 7, I have left the house of Israel. And he follows up in Jeremiah 22 with the same image in verse 5. If you do not repent, this house will become a desolation. It will be cleared off its foundation. Now, when Jesus announces this judgment, it wasn't just imagery or hyperbole. He's not just exaggerating. This is actually what took place. In fact, Jesus says this. Look at chapter 24, just the next first few verses of 24, first two verses. Jesus left the temple, was going away. Disciples came uh, to point out to him the buildings of the temple. He answered them, you see all these, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. This happened, didn't it? In 70 A.D., Jerusalem was reduced to rubble. The temple was destroyed. God had left. The glory was gone. In fact, the Israelites were scattered among the nations really until 1948. No more protection. No more mercy. Those days were over. Now it is just judgment and desolation. Sometimes we look 
Those of us who've traveled to Israel, you look at that Temple Mount and you think what a shame it is that there on the Temple Mount is several mosques that sit on that Temple Mount where the Temple used to sit. And if you're a Jew and you want to worship, you can't go up there. They're left to this little wall called the Wailing Wall. They sit there supposedly weeping that they can't even go up on their own Temple Mount. And we look, what shame? Well, that's a shame. Well, those, they shake our fist at Islam a demonic religion, we shake our fists at it, but just remember, this is God's judgment. God did this through the Romans first. God is in judgment of Israel at this point. God has left. The glory is gone. He's no longer for them, but against them. This is the desolation that Jesus is talking about. Well, Jesus didn't end there, thankfully. Verse 39, For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, this is not the point of Jesus' discussion here. This was not the point of his sermon. But he does sort of parenthetically add this at the end, just a reminder. All, after all this judgment upon the people of Israel, Jesus reminds them there's still, and I put it in parentheses actually, D, hope for Israel. My end times view is called premillennialism. One of the things that this means is I believe God will carry out his judgment against the people of Israel, but he also will carry out the promises eventually the people of Israel. In fact, you don't have to be premillennial to believe this. You can be amillennial. People like R.C. Sproul, Tom Schreiner, other people who lean amillennial uh, agree that there is a special place in the future that there will be some sort of revival or some sort of ingathering of Jewish people. To what extent, we don't know, but it seems like reading passages like this, reading passages like Romans 9, 10, and 11, it seems like God does have a place for ethnic Israel in the future. There'll be some sort of revival. In fact, I think that's what Isaiah 53 is, a very familiar chapter, right? Isaiah 53, I believe, is the, the revived people of Israel in the future looking back at this time, this time that Jesus was on the earth. Let me read to you, and it will make sense. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, as one from whom men hid their faces, and we esteemed him not. Talking of Christ, right? We esteemed Him not. Surely He's borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed Him stricken, smitten of God. It's His fault. He's getting judged by God. But He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon Him was a chastisement that brought us peace. And with His wounds we are healed. All oh, we like sheep have gone astray. We turned everyone to His own way. And the Lord has laid on Him the iniquity of us all. So there is a sin, and I believe Jesus is saying this especially right before he goes in the next day and explains a lot of this to his uh, men. Toward the end, as he returns to the earth, the people of Israel finally worship and they finally do it with a genuine heart. It's not like Palm Sunday where they say, Blessed be he who comes in the name of the Lord. And they don't even know what it means. They don't even believe what it means. They don't understand what it means. They're so far from God they can say those words and sing and celebrate and not even know that the Messiah is right in front of them. But in the future they'll say that, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And they'll know he is Jesus. And they'll be worshiping Jesus on that day. One day Jerusalem again by extension, all Israelites or many Israelites will be revived and they will reject all that false teaching and they will have some sort of revival where they come in and they worship Jesus Christ. But now at the time that Jesus is preaching, the people were following the false leaders blindly. 
They're following the legalists, the deceivers, the hypocrites. And they, like those leaders, were destined for destruction. Yes, overall, as you look at the people of Israel, that theme, there's, there's salvation in the future, but individually, those people died and went to hell because they rejected Jesus. It had nothing to do with Him. Now, we ought to see this judgment. We ought to see these curses as an act of mercy on us. Why? Because we get to see, as we're living, we get to see this and see the consequences of rejecting Christ, of blindly following false leaders. It's merciful, even though we don't like to read chapters like this. They're a little hard to read. Matthew 23, and woes and curses, and this sermon's a hard sermon, and we don't really like to read it, but it's mercy on us because it reminds us we need to be discerning and pursue knowledge and test our leaders, hold them in esteem and honor, but also hold them accountable. This damning report came out about the SBC this week, our own denomination. I don't know that's dramatically different from any other denomination, by the way. But there's terrible lack of accountability. There's a terrible lack of holding leaders accountable. Leaders should be scrutinized. Leaders should be tested. Leaders should be proven. Before it all is crashing down and there's judgment. Like the judgment Jesus brought that day, any judgment, really it's a mercy on us because we're reminded to do what's right, to pursue righteousness and to pursue what's good, to pursue knowledge and truth and discernment and to test anyone who would dare lead us. They're to lead us not to themselves. They're to lead us to Jesus, right? Ultimately, this is all about calling the people. Jesus is calling the people to Himself. Even though this was a hard sermon, it was a lot of cursing and woes, even though this is a, a tough sermon, this final passage, this final sermon really is a, is a wonderful act of mercy. One final warning to the people of Israel, turn away from these false leaders. Don't follow them into damnation and destruction. Rather, follow Christ, even if it costs you your physical life. It will mean eternal life. It called the people then, that sermon called the people then, and it calls us today to receive Christ as who He is, this God the Son. He came to give His life as a ransom for many. Are you among that many? Believe, and you will be. Turn from your sin, and you can be. Have faith in Christ, and you will be. Well, let's pray that He would give us the grace to do just that. Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank you even for these hard messages. There are so many messages in the Bible that are hard, and we like to think that there's just a bunch of easy, light, encouraging, therapeutic verses in the Bible, and there are encouraging, loving verses, but there's also just as many, if not more, sermons and passages that are passages of warning. And Lord, as we've looked at these false leaders of Israel over the last few weeks, Lord, may we avoid the sin that they involve themselves in, but also avoid just blind, blindly following people like that. May this church be discerning, even of my own words, even of my own life. I pray that they would look and see and inspect and get to know so that they understand, is this man a man worthy of honor and worthy of this role of teacher? I pray that those who go and find new churches as they depart this summer, I pray that they would find faithful men teaching your word. 
Give them discernment to see these things. And Lord, I pray for those who may not know Christ today. I pray that they would hear and understand that they need to reject all the sin, reject all the false, and follow Jesus Christ Himself. Believing in Him, turning from sin, committing their lives to fellowship. Give them the grace they need to believe and turn from sin and follow Christ. All of us need that grace. So we ask for the name of Jesus. Amen. All right, if you'll stand with me for a benediction. This one is inspired by 2 Corinthians 6, verses 1 and 2. Now may we go, appealing to one another and to all, to not receive the grace of God in vain, but may we worship Him now and forevermore. Amen. Amen.